champion building. So let's uh, let's talk about. I think we all know that in sales, champions are important, but they're even more important right now. And I want to share a stat with you from Gong. Gong did some analysis between 2020 and 2022, and what they found is that the number of buyer-seller interactions is decreasing. So in 2020, the number of calls per deal with reps using Gong was 5.1. So around five calls, let's say, over a typical deal cycle. In 2022, it was 3.9. So one less call per deal. That might not sound like a lot, but that's 20% fewer conversations happening throughout a sales cycle. The reason why that's important is if we don't have a really good champion to help with the communication between those large group calls and someone to help sell internally, we're getting less opportunity and less face time with our buyers and we really need that. It's very, very important that we have a champion that can advocate for us. And that's what this episode is going to be all about. If you're checking us out for the first time, my name's Jason Bay. I run Outbound Squad, and this podcast is all about helping you turn complete strangers into paying customers. So if you're an account executive doing full cycle sales or an SDR or BDR wanting to become an account executive and doing a ton of outbound, you're definitely in the right place. Today, I'm talking to Nate Nasrallah. One thing I highly recommend that you do is check out his newest book, Selling With. It is hands down, you can quote me on this, the best book out there on B2B sales. It's the most tactical book. I have ever read on B2B sales. So it doesn't just get into strategy and theory. There is very tactical scripts, templates, examples of language on how to multi-thread, how to build champions, how to speak with executives, what to do when you get a senior executive on a call for the first time and how that call might typically go, how to build a mutual action plan or business case. I mean, this book is just freaking killer. So one of the things that we talk about is what a champion is. And he talks about the three I's, influence, incentive, information. So does this person have influence within the org? Is there an incentive to help you? And do they share information? And in other words, are they willing to put in work? We get really specific with different types of scenarios and how to build champions when a sales cycle starts with a group of below-the-line buyers versus an executive we talk about what to do when you don't have a champion. And this is really just a masterclass that uh, Nate delivered on champion building. So without further ado, we're going to get into it. So I was just telling you before we hit record, uh, dude, one of the the best, if not like top two sales books I've ever read. So I'm setting you up for a lot of pressure today, dude. <laughs> I, I, I'm going to do my best to deliver, but that is um, incredibly <laughs> exciting and generous of you to say. So thank you, man. Yes, it's, uh, and again, not blowing smoke. I, it was the perfect combination of like one of the things that I've been really big on with our training programs lately is like making sure the content has a good mix of like why, what, and how, where the objective and what we're trying to accomplish is, is very straightforward. Uh, the strategy that we're employing is very clear and then providing tactics. And I think that most sales advice that you see, especially on LinkedIn, it tends to err on the side of either being too strategic and no tactical, or it's so tactical with no context. And it's like, all right, Nate, say this perfect phrase when you open up your next disco call. 
and this is the perfect way to set an agenda, et cetera, without really understanding why. And I feel like this book struck like a really good balance. Um, but why don't we kind of step back? What made you decide to to write a book? Because I, I spent a year writing a book on Outbound, got it edited like three times and had to scrap it because I just wasn't happy <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. with it. So it's a shit ton of work. Uh, what made you decide to write a book? Yeah, well, writing is in many ways how I think and how I clarify right. my thinking on, on certain topics. And so part of the, the fir- very first thing that I did when we started building Fluent, our company, is before going into prototyping product designs and so on, I just started to write out the thesis of what is it that we're trying to change and help sellers do inside of how they go to market, how they work and interact with their buyers. And as I, and even still, like you can see this, the very, the very last blog post that I put out after, you know, the book was already being published and so on this past week, I'm continuing to work out my point of view on the role of selling with champions, enabling them mm-hmm. to go sell internally when you can't be in the room with a uh, written business case. And so it's the way that I, evolve basically my point of view on selling, which guides and directly impacts the way that, for example, like we spend and deploy capital to go build a software product. So writing for me, especially in that long form of a book, is it gives me this whole playground to say, what is it that I believe so strongly that I don't see other people talking about that I believe sellers need to hear? And you know, you got to believe something pretty strongly because it's a lot of work to write a book. It takes a long time. Um, but that's kind of where it all started was, was me trying to clarify exactly what it is that I think about sales that is missing so that I can communicate that, um, in a more impactful way. And for the people who, you know, really want to go deep on it, a book is a great medium to be able to do that. Yeah. I think the big mindset shift of selling with that, I mean, in the book, it really just kind of jumps right out at you is that, you, I think if you're a, a rep, oftentimes what you think about to sell better, to increase my win rates or whatever, is you think about my sales skills. I have to improve how I do discovery. I got to get better at multi-thread. I got I to gotta get better at outbound. And what no one ever talks about is, well, you're not going to sell a big deal without a really strong champion. That doesn't mm-hmm. happen. And how do you enable that person to actually help? Because you probably know the exact stat. It's something like less than 10% of the interactions that the buying community has with you, I think according to Gardner, are actually with <laughs> the the sales rep, right? Most of the interactions and all the communication happens outside of that. So let's talk about let's talk about a couple of things. Um, I think maybe a good way. How did you stumble up? Like what was the aha moment for you? And feel free to you know kind of talk about your career. You've been doing this for a long time, very successfully, both as a an IC and a, a leader. Like, when was the aha moment for you? Of, oh wow, okay, I, I this actually clicks. Like, I, I get that now. Yeah, well, it it was a series of moments that built over time. But I talk about one of them. The very first piece of the book, the opener, was this moment where I was working on a deal, and um, my champion had set up a meeting with his chief product officer. And we jump on and I'm sitting there waiting for him. Um, He is way late and he's not showing up until like six minutes into the call. So we're just kind of like hanging out, talking back and forth. We were talking about travel plans and things like that. Then finally he joins in and she, uh, she turns to me and she's like, well, Nate, we're really excited to be working with you. And I'm like, I like kind of pause for a second. Because previously I, I had had my hand slapped by this SVP who was like, 
Nate, stop selling me. Like I'm on board. Like I get it. And so I, I had this moment thinking about that in this particular conversation where I was like, so she's sold like, like what's going on in the deal. And so, um, my, my champion takes over and he's like, okay, great. Um, Nate, you know, I'll call you in a bit. And that was the meeting. That was the entirety of the meeting. It lasted seven minutes with six minutes of filler. Yeah. And so, you know, he calls my cell phone afterward and he's like, all right, we're good to go. I was like, just like that. Like, what do you mean? We're good to go. He's like, yeah, just like that. We're good to go. I was like, what, but what happened? Like, we didn't even have a, you know, a meeting here. And he was like, oh, well, um, after I, I had to do this brief for my leadership team, you know, the one that we were working on and we had been writing up, um, his memo and the message that he wanted to bring into that conversation. She saw your name on a bunch of comments and markup. And she thought that you were part of our company and she just hadn't met you before. And so she was asking me like, who, do, you know, who does Nate work with? I haven't met him yet. And she realized like, oh, oh, got it. He doesn't work for our company. And so yeah. it, basically all of these conversations were happening behind the scenes and I was just setting him up to go lead those. And that was one of those moments where I was like, healthy six-figure deal with an incredible brand just like appeared because I spent a couple minutes talking about vacation plans with their executive. That only happens if I'm not the one who is actually selling it. I'm just setting somebody else up to go sell. And it's, what is so cool about that story when I read it in the book, I was like, I just smiled to myself because I thought, like you talk about completely relinquishing your ego as a salesperson and just saying, you know what, my job is to actually, for them to think, like think that I am in their business because everything is so like their way of making decisions. It's written in their language. It's attached to a priority. And you're like even using the name of the internal priority and mm -hmm. using their colors and fonts and like on the internal documents. And it's like the ultimate compliment, I feel like. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh, oh yeah. And like, especially as over your career, as you start doing larger and more strategic type deals, Every, yeah. every enterprise or strategic seller that you talk to over time will name off companies that they got job offers from. Because mm -hmm. at the end of the deal, at the end of the cycle, they were so entrenched, they understood so deeply what was going on inside of that company, often better than the people who work there because they are connecting and bringing other people together, often meeting each other inside of their own company for the first time. And yeah. by the end of that deal cycle, they're like, hey, do you want to come work for us? <laughs> like, you get it. Um, and it's fun, like to your point, you know, when you go so deep into, um, the internal process of selling that you're using their fonts and colors and so on, it's a, it's just a fun way to sell, man. It's very freeing. Yeah. So let's focus on champions in this mm -hmm. episode. Um, I kind of think of this and you kind of sort of categorized it as a, you know, how do we find a champion? So how do we know if we have a champion or right? how do we build sort of that relationship? And then maybe what are some ways that we could leverage our champion? Um, Let's talk about, you said champions always have three traits. So I think that would be a good place to start. What is a champion and, and what isn't a champion? Yeah, so those three traits of a champion, this sets them up to basically have the profile or the potential to be a champion. Um, one is influence. They can actually change the dynamics of what's going on in an internal conversation. Um, the second is information. They have this kind of hard to find deal intelligence that's going on behind uh, the scenes. And then number three is incentive. There's something that's in it for them that is directly tying them to the deal. So for example, if you don't have that last one, you have incentive, you have the other two influence and information. You can be an influencer, but you're not necessarily a champion. Like you could, you could go either way 
on the deal, right? Now, the nuance here is that you could have all three of those eyes and not be a champion because you're not putting those things to work and there's no evidence that you're moving the deal forward internally. So one of the analogies in there that I use is it's like the difference between potential and kinetic energy. Potential yeah. energy only becomes kinetic energy when you see it moving forward, like there's forward motion. So that's where kind of some of the language and the practices around testing and looking for evidence of a true champion comes from. It's behavior-based. So let's go through a couple common maybe scenarios. And are you thinking very first call, regardless of who that call is scheduled with, is this like goal number one for you is establish a champion? Is that the very first kind of thing that you're thinking about? Uh, yes, because the selling process doesn't start until you have somebody to actually go do the selling. Like all of the buying decisions are going to be made. The real selling happens behind the scenes. And so until you've built like an inside sales rep, which is a champion, like they are selling on the inside, you haven't really started the true sales cycle. And so you can kind of use buying and internal selling yeah. as synonyms here. So that is job number one, create your champion. You know, it's funny. You would think that more stale, uh, sales stage stages, like the first stage would be champion, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Or at least the exit criteria for the first stage, you know? It's hardly ever talked about. Um, so let's talk about, and again, I, I think, uh, let me know if there are other common scenarios that you see, but in my line of work, it's usually one of two scenarios. One is it's it's inbound. And the people that come inbound, if I use me as an example, it might be an enablement manager and maybe the head of enablement. It's rarely the people that really make the deal come together. The VP of sales is not coming inbound. The CRO is not reaching out and from a large company wanting to talk to me. It's usually starting below the line and we're going to need to get a lot of other people involved in. Oftentimes on that first call, my, my actual champion is not present in that first call. And then the other situation is you know, maybe it's outbound or I got a referral and I am starting with that VP of sales and it does start sort of above the line, so to speak. And I know it's more nuanced than that, but if we kind of look at those, are, th are those kind of the two most common scenarios just from your experience too? Is there anything else that you see before we dig into those? Yeah. So I'll give you some examples from my experience. Like, um, one, one recent, uh, deal, um, that we did, it started with somebody who was an individual AE signed up, started using fluent. He closed a $1.1 million deal building a business case for his company. And yeah. most people would say, oh, that guy is below the line. He's an individual contributor. Well, turns out he got the CRO's attention pretty quickly. He started showing exactly how he went about building the business case. They're now in this process of shifting to more of a value-based sales model. He's now the one at the front of the room leading SKO sessions on how to sell in a truly value-based way. And he's the one that got the audience with the CRO and others in the deal. Like he made those things happen. He was very much, much a champion. He had all three of those eyes. And that's the first, I think, mistake that a lot of people make is they believe things like influence or your potential to be a champion matches and fits squarely with the org chart and titles. And it's based on influence, not titles. Because on the flip side, um, where I was working on another deal, my first point of contact was the CRO about a thousand person company. And he just kind of did some kind of quick checks and made some referrals. Most times the executive in the deal is not going to be your champion. They are not going to be running and doing the legwork of the internal process to coordinate and pull everybody together. But as soon as we finish that discovery call, 
I had three new intros that people were responding to immediately. And so again, a lot of people will say, I need to get to the highest title in order to have the most powerful champion. And that's not the case. Yes. Let's focus on that for a second, because if I'm thinking about the, the biggest clients that I've won in the last couple of years, oftentimes my champion tends to be a director or head of sales enablement. That's usually someone like a recent client we're about to get a second engagement with. I'm like, this guy just, he rolls right directly up to the CRO. Mm -hmm. He's very connected with the VP of sales and he has a lot of influence over the decisions they make around the training. So like, and their CMO too. So really big influence. And I think of another one where it was like the VP of sales is oftentimes a champion. Um, those are the two primary scenarios usually for me. Mm -hmm. And then every now and then I would say a quarter of the time, there's a sales manager that's like the badass in the company that was the best seller, their, their team's crushing it. And basically the leadership is like, yeah, we'll do whatever they want to do, you know, kind of thing. So if we start with, let's start with the, I think more common one of very first call, I'm not quite sure who's going to be a champion. There's two or three people on the call, smallish kind of group. What are some things that I want to be thinking about to just identify who could be a potential champion? What are mm -hmm. some of the things that I'm looking for? What am I thinking about? Does it have to do with where I'm directing my questions? And I know this is uh, some, uh, uh, some sort of a vague question, actually, Nate. <laughs> Well, no, and it, it, I'm tracking with you and I'll pick up yeah. on that. Vague questions actually can be a good thing where if you have a small group of people, instead of directing it to an individual person, kind of throw it out there. And usually people will kind of look and try to see who will take the lead on it. Or if they're not quite sure, they'll look and be like, okay, is Jason or is Andrew or is Jamie going to take the first response? And who other people look to and wait to answer if it's not directed to anybody else is very telling. So that's, that's one thing to see like who naturally holds the gravity inside of the group and others are taking their cues from. The other thing that I'm often doing is I'm, I'm looking at, um, again, go back to this idea of it's all based on behaviors. You're looking for evidence. I'm trying to understand and see, hey, are, have you guys been trying anything, even if totally it's manual, it's hacky, it's a workaround to figure out a way to solve this problem? People who are already going to work, trying to get something done, that's a pretty good sign of like, okay, there's clearly something that is tying them to this. So that's the next eye. We just talked about influence. Now we're talking about incentive. And there's something that is holding them, even though this, you know, it's extra, it's outside of their normal job description, they're going to work at it. And then, so let's go to the third eye, information. One of the things that I may be asking is I might reference like where they were at their last job to say, was there anything similar that was happening at, you know, past company where you had to go about working through this there? What was that experience like? Anything that you think maybe applies or doesn't apply from that context to where you are now in this company. And I'm looking to see how detailed they're going. If somebody can talk about like scar tissue of like this experience went horribly what I now know about this company is this, we need to approach it this way. Some of those strong opinions can give me some intel and some information to say, okay, what are the ways in which we can work together to shape the deal? So kind of three points on each of those different eyes that I'd be looking at. I love that. 
the who holds the gravity in the group is like a total ninja technique. It requires a lot of emotional intelligence, I feel like, to put a question out to the group. And I'm guessing that in these calls, much like myself, you're looking at people's facial expressions. Like you were looking at every individual when you talk to see who they're looking to, if they hesitate, who steps up, that sort of thing. Because mm -hmm. what's fascinating, and on several occasions, I'll have champions record like an internal call. Like it's pretty common, a lot of like internal, like larger group conversations. Somebody's not there, they'll record it on Teams or Zoom, whatever. They will send me the links to those recordings. So again, I'm not in the room. It's not a sales conversation. It's an internal sales conversation. It's a buying conversation. And what ends up happening is the people that I thought sometimes if I wasn't paying close enough attention, you know, maybe they were quiet, just sitting in the corner. Nobody was kind of paying attention. Sometimes they come alive on certain topics internally. And I'm like, wow, I misread that. They, they're the person who is setting the tone and the tempo of this conversation. And other times it's spot on. But it's, it's fascinating, and that is exactly the gap between what you believe is happening in a sales conversation, which, back to your point on the data of Gartner, that's just a fraction of the reality of your deal, and what is actually happening behind closed doors, the gap in what you don't see and where you're understanding uh, is missing the reality of how the deal involves. That's exactly where stalled and lost deals come from. And the only person who can help you close the gap, like the only reason I got to look into some of those conversations is because I had a solid champion. And they were like, look, listen to this so that you can help me think about um, the framing to overcome some of these, these questions and these roadblocks. Yeah, love that. And then who's putting in the effort where the scar tissue is? Like who's already giving, showing signs of evidence, I think is the word that you've been using, that they're trying to fix this problem. They're putting in actual effort. So once, in this scenario, if it's a group call, I'm getting introduced to everyone for the first time. I've kind of pinpointed, okay, Nate, Nate looks like my champion. How do you, if we're doing a traditional sort of software sales cycle or buying process where I'm doing some discovery, we're trying to, you know, find out the problem. We're trying to prioritize that problem. We're trying to figure out who else it implicates, what the, the priority is, all of that kind of stuff. A general next call might be starting to explore a little bit more who else cares about that. And depending on how far we've gotten, we might do like a, some light demoing, let's say, just so people can get a peek. Between that first and second call, and this is sort of like very tactical, what am I doing in that first call after I've identified the champion who I think will be a champion? Am I being fairly explicit about in that call wanting to, let's say, have a one-to-one -one conversation with that person. Um, so I'm kind of getting into the portion of the book where you talk about testing the champion. What do I do to kind of build, once I, I identify who the champion is, what do I do to kind of build that relationship? What does that look like maybe in that first meeting, for example? So this is where we come to the idea that, yes, we're testing champions to figure out, like, do we have a champion? But a true and a solid champion, like the person who you want to become a champion is going to be testing you first. And it's the piece that a lot of reps miss because somebody who is going to bat for you internally, they're going to be spending down a lot of the, call it social capital that they have worked very hard to build and earn over time. And so they have to figure out like, is, is this the person that I want to work with? Like, do I trust that this is the right deal for us? Do I believe that I'm going to be better off 
running this process with them than without them and me just kind of, you know, doing it internally. And so they're always first kind of testing you. So with that in mind, what I'm doing toward the end of your, um, end of the first call to your question, I'm going to set up something like, Hey, if I were to build out a kind of a short recap based on my understanding and our conversation today, would you be open to leaving me a comment or two before our next meeting? When we go talk uh, with Andrea to let me know if I'm on the right track. And so what I'm doing there is I'm saying, Hey, I heard you, I'm going to put pen to paper and show that I am tracking, framing the problem. I'm right there with you. They see understanding. Okay. Like Jason gets it in a way that I, you know, I don't always hear from other people. And then that action of like, did they actually, um, make a comment? Are they with me? Are they starting to kind of think about setting up for that second conversation? It's again, very practical evidence that you can see. So if I was in a group call, for example, and there's three other people and let's say you, Nate, are who I think is going to be a champion, I would just call that out on the call and say, Hey, Nate, between now and our next call, I'm going to send a recap to the group on a document. Would you mind adding some comments and just let me know, did I get this? Or is there something that you would add? Like you're yeah, doing exactly. That yeah okay exactly and then by the way on the start of the second call i'll tag you in and be like hey you know jason maybe as a starting point for the group um, would you be open to recapping and I'll, I'll pull up that written problem statement on the screen as a bit of a cue a bit of a guide to show that we were working on it ideally with your name showing it as a comment so people see like oh jason is working with nate on this you know jason do you want to give your take on some of the main goals that we could dig into with the group together and then I'll see, and you can tell a lot, like, does Jason come alive and is he, is he ready to go share? Or is it kind of like, you know, yeah, we're kind of lightly exploring and I thought it might be interesting. So, hey, take <laughs> it away. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> Two very different things. Yeah. I'm laughing because I've definitely gotten that, that type of answer before. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you have brought this up. I think we're about to do a, a webinar on multi-threading. I think you had brought that up. Uh, as a tip, like handing the baton over to your champion and having them kind of start, you know, that second call. So interesting. So, hey, we have to be mindful. They're testing us first. There are some ways that we can test the relationship. One of them is assigning action items. You had mentioned uh, opening up more, you know, kind of private forms of communication. So that's the text, Slack connect. How, how, um, Let's get really tactical with this too, because I feel like my win rate is so much higher when I'm in a texting mode with, with the champion. Like it mm -hmm. now it's like a rare occurrence when I'm not when two years ago, it's, it was probably maybe 25% of the time I'd have like a good kind of back and forth texting kind of thing. And it's almost every sales cycle now. So can you talk a little bit more about the importance of that and how to kind of ask for that, how to tee it up, maybe do's and don'ts so we don't abuse the communication channel there? Yeah. So the benefit of it is that you're going to get a lot more, um, call it insider baseball in different yeah. channels outside of email that could be forwarded around. You could mistakenly CC people and people are just a lot more carefree and a little bit more casual with the information and kind of how they're sharing that information by the end, doing that more frequently in other channels. So like in an international deal, I'm opening up a WhatsApp um, thread yeah, over in the US, just iMessages, or if, hey, they're on Slack, it'll be a Slack Connect channel. And one of the things that I'm asking is I will usually do it in a specific context where I'll ask and I'll say, hey, you mentioned that you're getting ready 
um, for that ELT retreat that you're going on. The executive leadership team is going off on a retreat and you're preparing a couple things for them. I'm gonna write something up. If I hit a question, um, is I'm putting this together later this afternoon, you mind if I just shoot you a quick text? Um, I find it's easier to get some quick, quick input um, and it'll probably be a question or two. Yes, no, great. There's a specific use case, a specific scenario where now we've started to text and then you can build on that over time. And you can also just um, ask, you know, uh, what, what, what would your preference be or what would you be more comfortable with? We could do text, we could do Slack, totally fine, whatever you're typically using with your team. And so you're trying to match or mirror what they are already doing to communicate throughout the day. Got it. Okay. So, so far we've talked about kind of below the line buying group. And I say below the line in quotes because it, there's a ton of nuance to that, obviously, but I'm starting with a group of folks where I didn't get a, an executive in that's going to introduce me to people on their team. I'm having to work from, from not necessarily the absolute bottom, but I am kind of working up. Um, let's talk about the above the line because it, although it's a more rare occurrence, you get that referral to another executive or maybe another department within an account that you're working and you're starting with someone that's fairly senior. I think one of the most common mistakes you alluded to is just thinking, oh, this is going to be an easy one. I already got access. Like I'm starting with the SVP of sales, <laughs> you know, and those deals are just as easy to mess up in my experience. So when we're thinking about champions, are you, is your mindset going into that? Are you kind of already coming in knowing that, Hey, this, I, I got to know that this person's not going to be my champion necessarily. And I got to do the best that I can to like, get them to introduce me to someone on their team that really cares about this. What's the kind of thinking going into that meeting and, and how do you approach meetings like that from a champion building standpoint? Yeah. So as it relates to an executive meeting, one of the things that I'm thinking about is finding and curating the right buying committee, like the right group of people. Because often what ends up happening, and this will kind of touch on the multi-threading topic, is you will um, start to see some sprawl in the committee. A lot of contacts and way too many contacts. A lot of people who may say no and shut down a deal, but they can't actually green light or move a deal forward. And so you're kind of wandering your way around trying to get to the right set of people to ultimately make a compelling case to say, hey, let's green light this. Let's go for the change. Let's roll it out. And that executive is going to be very um, effective at helping you understand exactly who would need to come together, be part of that conversation, number one. And then number two, what else are they working on that might take higher priority? And when you're thinking about the executive's point of view, and this is another thing that is, is often missed, your greatest competition is rarely another vendor. It is far often other competing priorities where they don't want to distract or pull staff time in focus off of other things that they believe are more important. And so when you're talking about selling to an executive level metric, think about uh, in the case of a CRO, it's like, let's grow revenue. That's the CRO's job, increase revenue. Well, you can do that in a lot of different ways. You can think about upsells and cross-sells. You can um, change the mix of products. You can raise prices. You can double down on new logo acquisition. There's so many different drivers behind that high-level metric. And so what you're trying to understand from the executive's perspective is what is the most important thing, top of the list. If this deal were to just disappear, what would take priority over it? And if we're saying this is a priority, who are the right people that we need to bring together without, again, going so far into too many contacts where things just get unmanageable? 
So you bring those two things together. That's the ideal outcome of an executive conversation. Got it. And this is in challenger speak, you're using their help essentially to find your mobilizer. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, for example, if they have hired somebody over, like in the past two jobs, you know, you see somebody who jumps and follows them from company to company, chances are they're probably going to listen to that person. They brought them over yeah. for a reason. Maybe that's your mobilizer. Could you get an introduction to that person? Oh man, I, dude, I didn't even think of this because one of the, one of my longstanding clients, my main point of contact, like we're not working with them anymore because my main point of contact, their SVP moved to another company and long story short, didn't get along with the CRO. There's like a bunch of stuff, you know, going on there. But what I noticed is that the, the VPs that moved from that company, the companies they moved to, they bring people with them all the time to like, look for that. Mm -hmm. and have that a part of my research to where that's someone that I could ask for and suggest that we get involved is that person. Hey, there's probably a reason why you brought so-and-so over. What are you guys working on? You know, that kind of thing. Um, dude, that's a, that's a great pro tip. Um, yeah. let's talk about <laughs> it's, it's tough with, with this book talking to you about it because you, we could literally spend an hour on every topic, like in this book, like it talks about discovery, multi-threading, all the like champion building, everything is sort of connected in a huge like web of stuff. But I wanted to get into, I thought you had some really good stuff around general communication principles. For example, one of the things you talked about was spread info broadly, make asks individually. And it's something I see reps messing up a lot. And I've been guilty doing it where you have a great group call stuff needs to get done and you assign the action items to the group in a group email versus going individually to people with what you need. Do you have some broad brush strokes? Like what are your kind of general communication principles and best practices for the stuff that happens between the calls? What's the best way to communicate between calls to the group, to your champion? How should we be thinking about that? Yeah. So out of one big group thread, you're going to see a series of like single threads start to shoot off of that main like trunk. You'll see a bunch of different branches, usually branching off into different kind of work streams. There could be you're doing a technical review over here. You're getting some data from FPNA over here and so on. And so what I'll do is I will write that group email intentionally to create the overall context of the business or the common thread that ties everybody together. Um, so it's not long. It's not going deep into the instructions. Hey, FPNA, we need this type of data from this time period in this customer segment. I'm, I'm keeping all of that out. And then I'm taking that group message and I'm forwarding it onto just the one person who is going to execute. And ideally, if I have the person who sets their priorities and manages their workflow, they're going to be in CC. And so, you know, let's say, Jason, um, you report to Jamie. I'm going to forward, and you're in the FPNA team, I'm going to forward that group contacts and say, hey, Jason, you know, before the next conversation on Thursday, we thought it'd be helpful to just kind of understand the extent to which um, this is an issue in the SMB segment. If we could get churn numbers by then, um, and I, I might include a little bit more detail, um, does that timetable feel realistic given the other work that you're doing? And I'll have in CC Jamie, because if Jamie has a different opinion, and who are you going to talk with? Like when I ask, does this timetable work for you? 
Notice, by the way, it's a question. It's not get this data by next Thursday. Who are yeah. you going to go ask? It's Jamie. Now Jamie sees that that communication plus the context for the business and the group overall. So that's the uh, that's the whole principle behind the spread information broadly, but a call to action individually. Yeah. Again, this is such a massive, massive pro tip for email communication. So I'm going to write the broad email. I'm going to forward it to the individual. Another thing that you did there that you talked about is yeah, like when you need data, gathering data from points of contacts within the same department. So you're not going to ask for something for someone to get something that is not in their department to have to go somewhere else to get it. And then keeping that person's sort of boss, so to speak, in that email so that it's really obvious what we're what we're trying to get and why and, you know, all of that sort of stuff. Um, I wanted to ask you another concept there you said was write forwardable emails. So some advice I was given from a good friend of mine, Dan Strauss, uh, he's helped me with a lot. He was one of the top sellers at zoom info and then chorus before they were acquired. And he, uh, a couple of years ago taught me a lot of the ins and outs of the stuff I know around enterprise selling, because I was starting to move up market. That's a big thing that I've been doing in my business in the last three years is working with mm -hmm. larger companies and you know, selling to a sales team with 500 plus reps, very different from 50, you know, reps. And one of the pieces of advice that he gave me was, hey, every follow-up email that you send, it should have like the priority, like the business priority that this is attached to, like in that email at the very top of it, because they're going to forward that off. And if an executive sees it, you want it to grab their attention. Do you have, like, what advice do you have around when you say forwardable emails, and I know there's all kinds of different types of emails, but what are some general best practices when I'm emailing something to someone knowing that it could be forwarded off? What do I want to make sure that's included in those emails that's very obvious so that if it does get forwarded off, it catches the attention of that executive, let's say, in a good way? Yeah, so that that's the whole principle of writing through somebody instead of writing to Jason. I'm writing to Jamie, but I'm doing it through Jason. And the big idea there is I'm thinking about what language is Jamie going to recognize and is already using to tell her team, this is really important to me. And so I might, instead of saying something like, you know, Jamie, the CRO growing revenue, increasing revenue, I'm going to say something so narrowly specific because it relates to like an internal trigger phrase that calls to memory immediately. Oh, this is the thing that we're working on. Yeah. So um, as some examples, projects that uh, I'm hooking up into in some of my larger enterprise um, deals, um, Aardvark, The Race to 66, Anaconda. Um, these are very specific like names and things that I could not send that in any other email because they would be like, what the heck is an Aardvark and why is this in a subject line, right? So it is so specific to that executive's own language where if they see that in the subject line, number one, and number two, it's coming from an internal sender, Jason, not an external sender, Nate, they're going to prioritize that and it's going to jump to the top of the inbox. Um, so a lot of reps will say, oh, I got to you know, follow up and make sure that this goes to the executive. The chance that they ignore that skyrockets when it comes from you, the seller versus a member of their own team. And you yeah. can even talk about this at the end of the conversation um, where you might say, hey, Jason, you mentioned wanting to keep Jamie up to date as we're going kind of deeper and getting some of the data together. Would it be better if I wrote you a quick update that you could forward on to Jamie, see seeing me, or do you want me to just go ahead 
send it to Jamie and CCU. Nine out of 10 times, they'll say, hey, send it to me and I'll forward it on and loop you in. Yeah. That's such another powerful point too around, <laughs> you know, with multi-threading, we want to think, oh, hey, we'll go, we'll go it alone if we have to, but you just don't want to do that. It's, that's not going to work. <laughs> Having communication that your champion has bought into the economic buyer or whoever it is, the decision makers, they're bought into keeping them in the loop and they forward the emails over. It's like, yeah, and, and your champion's going to be the best way to get time, you know, with people too. They're a Slack message away, you know, from being able to get on someone's calendar. Um, what, what do we do if? What do we do if we're a call in and we're like, shit, I don't know if I have a strong champion after this first call. Like we set up a second call and I just didn't really get enough good vibes from anyone to know, do I have a really strong champion yet? What do you, what do you do in those situations? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. So in that scenario, what I'm doing is I'm trying to just call that out <laughs> and I'm, I, and I'll say, Hey, it seems like we're not quite getting the traction with the rest of the team that we were hoping for at this point. One of the things that I've seen in other projects like this is it became really important to get in a label, you know, another person or another role. You know, do you think it would be helpful if I were to reach out and try to see if they have an opinion on this? Maybe it kind of sparks some new thoughts for us. And so I'll, I'll toss it out there and I'll see how they react to it. And if they're like, I know, like I've been trying my hardest and people are ignoring me and it is incredibly frustrating. <laughs> You're like, okay, well, let's talk about that. Th one, thank you for trying. Why don't you think this isn't catching their attention? And then maybe that's on you as the seller. You're not giving them the right message and framing, the language that makes people say, oh, I do need to jump in, but they're doing their best. By the way, that could be where you're in more of a coach first champion scenario where they just don't have the draw when they say, hey, this is an important meeting, you know, they go, but they're trying, right? So it can open up some of the dialogue. Generally, I find if you are feeling something is going on in the deal, as long as you're using invitational language, just yeah. put it out there, call it out, label it, and it'll allow people to be like, oh yeah, Jason, thank yeah, I'm feeling the same, you know, and then you can, you can have a conversation about it. Can you talk more about invitational language? Yeah. So an in invitation is something that allows somebody else to feel a sense of like control and autonomy. Like I have some agency in this decision. What happens if I'm like, Jason, we need to go talk to Jamie and to keep this deal moving, we're going to do it by Friday. You're, you're going to be like, heck no, <laughs> we're not going to do that because you told me I'm doing it. We're not going to do that. Yeah. But if I were to say something like, um, you know, Jason, I was thinking about your point that Jamie had some prior experience at American Express, her last company. She probably has an opinion on this. Um, when do you think might be the right time to ask if there's something that she may see differently or want to include within the project planning? And then if you're like next week, oh, that's interesting. I was thinking just based on, you know, the point that the holiday season is around the corner that you know, maybe this week would put us in a better position with the overall launch plan. What are you thinking about, you know, next week? It's like, oh, I already have a standing, you know, agenda where I can like slip this in. And then you have a conversation about it. You're inviting their point of view as opposed to shutting it down and saying, let's do it this way. Yeah, love that. Let's touch on priorities for a bit because I feel like the, the champion is such a 
great way to like getting intel on what the actual business priorities are is very tough <laughs> without a champion like a, a company that's not publicly traded they don't just like post this in places even publicly traded companies are a little little crafty sometimes depending on what you're selling um you had this chart i thought was really cool it was priorities versus win rates and there's this priority like threshold or level that something needs to meet so can you talk about you know your champion through the context of you know, why is it important that we want to understand what the business priority is so that we can attach to it? And how can we get our champion to help us figure out like what is important to the business? Yeah, part of my thinking on priorities came from a phrase that I heard Reed Hoffman talk about. Executive leadership is essentially deciding which fires you're going to let burn. There are so many things that need to happen in a company. There are so many problems. Yeah. And executives have this insane and almost ruthless ability to put blinders on and say, these are the only things that I care about and are important. Meanwhile, there are fires burning in other places of the company, but they don't give as much leverage. They're not as strategic and so on. And what that means is it is insanely difficult to change an executive's mind once they've prioritized something. Yeah. It is far better to align with the priority that they are already sold on and they're actively investing in. And so the idea is that you may have found quote unquote pain or a problem because there's a fire and certain people who are standing closest to the fire, they're like, ow, this hurts. I don't want that to continue. But then you go to the executive who can actually green light the change of the deal. And they're just like, yeah, I'm not going to spend any time on that. It doesn't have any mind share with them. And so you may have found a problem, but it's not a true problem until it is blocking a priority. That's more of just like an inconvenience or a frustration or an issue. It's not an actual problem until it becomes a blocker. So how do you learn about what those priorities are? How do you find out what the executive's priorities are? Um, well, one, it can tell you to your point, it, if you actually have a potential champion or not, like if they are not able, I'll give you an example. I was working on a deal um, with a series E company. So real late stage, a lot of decisions, however, are still happening at the board level. They had cut a lot of their enablement team. They had made some pretty serious restructuring. And I knew I had a solid champion in one of the uh, director of sales when he pulled up a board slide and he said, here are the three things, the three main things that the board is talking about in the language that they're using. Can we weave some of this into our business case? I was like, absolutely. Yeah, and, like, yes. <laughs> yes. Those were the three sections that framed up the business case. Now, it's not always as tangible as like they pull up a slide deck with the board priorities literally labeled. You know, sometimes it'll often come out more conversationally as you're asking, but that's what you're ultimately trying to understand is what are the things, not just that you and your boss are talking about, but what is your boss and their boss? and the board, what are they talking about behind closed doors? That's a priority. Yeah. So what I'm hearing here is that if you are talking to your champion about this and you're asking, you know, Hey, Nate, your CRO, Tim, what's on his list of priorities for 2024? What are the, what are the big initiatives for the sales work next year? If you don't know, that is a red flag. If you're not aware of what those priorities are. Yeah, and I'm usually asking it from the opposite frame where I'm saying when you when you think about what your CRO has been talking about, 
you know, for 2024, what do you think our project is going to take a backseat to? What's more important? Yeah. And then that's where you can really understand because if they're like, no, you know, nothing, this is the most important thing. They're probably speaking from a very contained and narrow point of view because to them, it is the most important thing, right? That's what they're focused on. But if they can't link or reference something else, and chances are they just may not have that altitude um, in that perspective. Yeah, that que- the way you phrase that question is so brilliant too. The discovery section, the questions that you had in there, the way that they're phrased, it's so much more inviting because it's, um, I don't know what this principle is. Maybe you know in psychology where if you compliment someone and I say, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know this, but let's, let's say that, uh, you're trying to work out every day and you don't. And I'm like, Oh, Nate, like you're so disciplined about working out. You're such a disciplined guy. And if you really weren't disciplined, you would like correct me. Right. And that's a lot. It's a lot easier for me to get you to admit that you don't work out as much as you would like by phrasing the question that way versus asking how often do you work out? Mm-hmm. You know? Um, so that way that you phrase the question, what's the psychology behind that? Cause I feel like that's a great framework around like getting people to open up about stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's a couple of different things. One, your choice of words ha- it can change the answer, change the response. Um, for example, there was a pretty fascinating study that was done uh, by a group of professors um, out of NYU where they gave people um, uh, basically like a series of words to describe a car accident, um, accident, collide, collision, smash, and they played a video and then they asked them, how fast do you think the car at fault was going? The more aggressive language that they used, the more people w- would dial up their estimate of speed. And so the, the words that you use can change the way that people see and receive the question that you're asking and can change how they respond. And so one of the things that you'll notice is like, we just reverse the frame because if you say, hey, what are your CRO's priorities? What are people going to believe you're trying to do? Oh, he's trying to jump over me and get to my CRO. But if you say, hey, thinking about our project, we're in this together, what do you think um, this may need to take a back seat to? What, what, what are you saying? Is like, hey, um, when you think about what's most important to your CRO, and you may have to sit in the back seat, you're not up in the driver's seat, you're in the back seat, like, why might that be? you're creating a willingness or an interest to be like, well, let's talk about how do we increase the level of importance? Okay, so this is, these are the things that the CRO is interested in. This is what you know, we're planning for next year. And then you can open up this conversation around how to relate and link those two. Um, so word choice is important. Yeah, you called that what again? Reversing the what? Um, the frame, just flip the frame upside down instead of saying, yeah. Hey, w- what are your CRO's priorities? What's important to them? You're basically saying, hey, let's look at the opposite. Like, why isn't this a priority to them? Why does yeah. our project, what you believe is important, why is this getting decreased in priority? And it's, it's the exact same thing where you can say, if somebody says like, oh, this is, this is too expensive. Well, you just flip it upside down. Um, well, thanks for sharing that. Would you be open to letting me know, like, what would something that isn't too expensive look like? Or... You know, this isn't the right time right now. Yeah. Got it. It's not the right time. What would the right timing look like? Yeah. And then you just talk about it. 
Love that, man. Love that. Uh, one last thing, if we could end on, I thought that was really interesting was you talked about the three areas where something might get discussed. It was the meeting in the meeting and after the meeting. Can you touch on that real quick? Cause I thought it was a really good, uh, reality check. <laughs> yes. Am I attached to the as important of a priority as I think that I am, you know? Mm -hmm. Like if you have been in any type of leadership team meeting, you know that there's an agenda to start the meeting. Hey, these are the topics that we got to discuss. And you also know that unless you are one or maybe two on that agenda, nothing else is getting covered. Those yeah. meetings always go off the rails. They always go long. And so the question is, is your deal, this goes back to priorities that we were talking about. Is it attached to a high enough priority that you're not going to have to take a back seat? And people are like, oh, sorry, we just didn't get to it. So there are three different things that your deal can be. Again, talking about meeting agendas because it is a very practical way to measure priorities. You can either be the meeting. In other words, you are the reason the meeting was called. There is nothing else on the agenda. You are the meeting. You could also be in the meeting. You are one of a couple agenda items. And that's where you have to dig in. Are we the first, the third, the fifth agenda item? Because those are very different things. And then lastly, you could be after the meeting where it's like, oh, hey, by the way, there was something that I wanted to talk to you about. And then you just, it doesn't even get discussed nor put on the agenda. So obviously the best place to be, like what I would put in my forecast as a sales leader is when your deal is the meeting. Yeah, love that, dude. Well, we're out of time. That flew by, dude. <laughs> so um people listening you definitely need to check out the book can you let people know again where where they can get their hands on the book learn more about you all that good stuff yeah so if you want to check out the book go to amazon and search selling with um selling with nate it'll pop right up and then um i hang out on linkedin quite a lot so nate nasrallah over on linkedin um and i'd love to yeah chat with anybody who found some of this interesting and I just say, Jason, man, you always bring so much life and energy to the conversation. So thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs>